Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy. I believe that we are all so much more powerful than we can possibly understand. My goal with these conversations is to introduce you to brave, vulnerable people who are finding and owning their awesome. My guests are leaning into what makes them unique and sharing that uniqueness with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you to break free from whatever is holding you back and to step into your own greatness. Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My guest today is Will Reason. He's a high performance coach who's got this incredible background, a lot of interesting stuff going on, and I'm just really excited for you all to meet him today. So welcome, Will. Hey, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So let's start out with a conversation we were just having when I paused you and said, hold on, we got to get this party started because what you're saying is really interesting stuff. You are into this somatic stuff. Can you start out first by telling us what that is? So somatic, uh, somatic work in general is body focused. Soma comes from the Greek word meaning of the body. And so the somatic work that I'm doing is like a, a body-based approach to elements of, and I, I weave in a body-based approach to elements of coaching. Um, I'm going through a training program by a guy named Dr. Peter Levine right now, who founded the Somatic Experiencing Institute. And his life's work is based around understanding the the hidden mechanisms or the biology of, of why the organ, the human organism does what it does. I think that's how I interpret it. <laughs> so, so essentially what I'm learning is how our nervous system um, interacts with stimulation from our environment and how that impacts the decisions that we make and the patterns of our behavior. Peter's work is focused um, on trauma. So, he wants to help the body to renegotiate trauma or to resolve trauma that's stored in the tissue. But the way they think about trauma is like any sort of intense experience or stimulation that's, that happens to the nervous system. So pretty much everybody in the world has experienced some kind of trauma at some point or another. So if you know anything about psychology, you know that we have these different ways that we experience the world and different ways that we interpret or retain our memory of that experience in the world. We have our implicit memory, which is a body-based memory. And then we have our explicit memory, which is kind of in the mind, so to speak, our cognitive memory. Well, the somatic approach to things is looking at how the body has this memory and what that memory does when we come up, uh, when we go through situations or experiences in our lives. And so it's really, really interesting, right? So like we have the different branches of the, of the uh, nervous system, and then we have the different branches of the vagus nerve, which is, I think Stephen Porges wrote a, like began his theory on the polyvagal system in the, I think it was the seventies or something like that. And Peter worked pretty, I think he worked extensively with or drew from uh, Porges's work. I'm pretty sure they knew each other though. Um, and so the vagus nerve runs through the central corridor of our body um, with three main branches. There are a lot of branches, but polyvagal, meaning multiple vagus branches. So we have our social engagement system, which is in the face. So like the way we interpret the world and the way we, we are able to establish connection with other human beings is through 
our social engagement system. So it's like the expressions that we're making, the tone of my voice or the prosody, right? So it's like, do I have a sing-song voice? <laughs> like when we're talking to children, we use a different tonality in our voice to help them know that it's safe and it's okay and what we're saying is, you know, and they're, they're not really listening to the words that we're saying, but they're understanding us based on that implicit like body language and whatnot, right? So we have our social engagement system, but then in the, the center of our, of our chest, we have our, and I'm generalizing here, but we have a, a branch of the nervous system, which is the sympathetic nervous system, right? And there are a lot of nerve endings that connect in through the connective tissue to our organs, most especially and specifically our, our heart and our lungs, which reside here in the chest. Well, that part of the nervous system is, it, it gets activated all throughout the day so that we can move ourselves and mobilize ourselves. Well, if there was a book that fell off your bookshelf in your office right now, your body would, it would say, I need extra blood flow, I need extra oxygen so that I can turn my head and look and notice what that sound was to make sure that I can assess for danger, whatever, right? So that's the part that protects us. So it's fight or flight. Now, really generalizing here, right? These things are activated and deactivated and they come online and go offline all throughout our day. But then we have the parasympathetic, which is housed in our, not entirely, but a great portion of it's housed in our lower gut. So it's our rest and digest system, like the gut brain, you know, the heart brain and the head brain kind of idea here, the three brains. So as we're moving through the world, all the time, these things are getting activated and deactivated. So we come up against a stressful situation, we might, our temperature might get elevated, our heart rate might raise. We're going into, so like for me, I felt really comfortable coming to this interview because you and I know each other. But like, let's say that I'm going to interview on CBS or something like that. My sympathetic nervous system might be really activated. Like I might get really sweaty. I'm, you know, my palms might get weird. I might get kind of shaky. I might have breathing really hard. My body is interpreting some sort of threat. And then I'm going to make a whole bunch of meanings about this, which are then going to then have a response in my body. So in this work, what's really interesting is that when we're able to notice how the nervous system is responding in our clients, which is where my interest comes into play here, the, it gives us signals about what part of the body is activated and then is there a stress response inside the tissue in the memory of the body to whatever the situation is that they're working through in their life. And, and uh, so Peter's interest was specifically focused on trauma in the beginning of his research. What happens to people who have been to war and come home and they have symptoms that look like Tourette's? What, what's going on with the body? What's that mechanism like? You know, what's happening? And what he found is that there can be sequences in the body, in the, in the muscle, in the tissue that get stuck or play on repeat. And what I find really interesting about that is that, you know, we've all had relationships that resemble previous relationships in our lives. We all have a like series throughout our life of events that seem to resemble each other in our relationships with other people. Like, why is this person, why does this seem familiar? Why am I recreating this thing in my life? Like, God, why does my, my boss always yell at me? You know, things like this, right? Well, if we really look at the sequencing of events that have happened to our body, not cognitively speaking, what we often find is that our body's in search of um, healing or releasing from an experience. So it recreates a, a representation or like another experience that resembles some experience from the past 
physiologically speaking, so that that part of our physiology, or that part of our physiology can unravel itself, can come out and find healing and discharge or renegotiate itself. Oftentimes it ends up re-stimulating that thing and we play out the exact same pattern again. We run away or we try to fight and we're not able to resolve whatever that thing is. So we find ourselves in the situation over and over and over again. And so with this work, Peter's uncovered a way to help the body to release whatever the thing is or renegotiate it, right? So create a new neural pathway so that you have a normal response to threat. So there's an activation and then a deactivation normally. So like if I need to get angry, I can get angry, but I don't get stuck angry. I can just calm right back down. If I need to get sad, I can get sad, but then I can calm down and feel normal again. So it kind of allows us to not get stuck mm -hmm. in one particular place. Yeah. So often when we've experienced trauma, let's just say, take for instance, the idea of being in a car accident or something. And one of our trainers loves to use this story. I'm going to use his story. It's not mine. <laughs> but he uses this example of this guy stepping outside, admiring the sky, having an amazing day. And all of a sudden there's a flash of red and he wakes up a week later in the hospital. Now he's told that he was hit by a car. He had some, you know, he had a concussion. He was out. Maybe he had some brain damage. I don't know. But he goes about his day and he, he reassimilates back into the world. Every time he's around somebody that's wearing a red shirt, he gets really enraged. He has no idea that, that those two things are even connected. He just knows that around certain people, he gets mad. Or around certain people, he gets really panicky. And now on the right side of his vision, he's got, kind of got a blind spot. He doesn't really notice things over there. Or he's always looking to the right and he doesn't notice things on the left. These are examples of what happens to the body when there's a sequencing that's unable to be processed, that's unable to happen. And so a really great example of sequencing here, like Peter talks about a gazelle and a polar bear, and I'll tell you about this gazelle because I think it's a really great example of it. So like gazelle gets chased by cheetah, right? Gazelle runs away. The sympathetic nervous system is activated. It's running away. It's going to protect itself. Cheetah goes to grab it. Well, the gazelle's nervous system knows that it can't experience its own death. So they fall together as one and it turns off its ability to sense the experience of its own death. But let's say cheetah decides that it's, it, it doesn't want to eat the gazelle. So it tackles it, it drags it off, but then it's like, I'm going to go have a milkshake. I think milkshake sounds better than gazelle today. So it wanders off. So the gazelle gets up. What does it do? It goes back into the exact sequencing that it was in physically immediately. So it jumps up, it takes off running. If its legs are broken and it can't mobilize, it's going to move in place frantically for a few moments. Once it's resolved the, ne the need for that sequencing to play out, it then will stop. It'll take these deep breaths and it'll shake itself. Kind of like you see a dog do if it bumps its head. So there's the sequencing that happens. Animals naturally know to do this. Humans sometimes, they get stuck and they don't allow it. So we talk ourselves out of feeling the emotion that comes up in our body. We talk ourselves out of getting angry or getting upset or doing the thing. And then we find ourselves replaying those patterns of behavior over and over and over and over and over again in our lives. And so when we look to the body, we can incorporate the body as like it's giving us all the clues and the signals of what's actually happening on the inside. And when we get the body out of the way, the mind can do what it does best, which is drive.
Okay. So, all right. So much good stuff. This gave you so much information. <laughs> so much. All right. I want to back it up to, I never thought of the sympathetic nervous system being in the chest. And, and it's, it may not actually be isolated there. It's just, there was a lot of activity in that area. I just want to take it back to college. I was a neuroscience major and I always remember the difference between sympathetic and parasympathetic as I kind of made sense of the sympathetic being sympathy. You have sympathy that leads to fight or flight. Somehow mm -hmm. that worked for me. Um, and I think if I had thought of it as more being in the chest and parasympathetic being in the gut, that may have been more effective. Yeah. Well, with the polyvagal system, uh, it's kind of new. I mean, like they just were able to prove it with neuroscience, I guess, recently, very recently. So it's no longer a hypothesis. It's, it's, it's proven. It's a proven theory. It hasn't been, you know, they've been able to prove it through science. Also, something that's really neat is the understanding of fascia, right? That thin layer yeah. of connective tissue in our body. Well, now we're starting to understand that that fascia is like a, a casing, kind of like a hot dog casing, sort of. But it encases everything in our body. It encases every single one of our organs. It, it, it encases our our muscles, it encases everything. And not only that, it has electromagnetic, it has neuronal, neuronal activity or whatever. There are neurons and electrical signals that are being, that the information from our nervous system is being sent to the fascia. So when you see people that have difficulty moving in their body because some sort of traumatic event that happened in their life, what's happening is that the fascia is really tight in their body because it's trying to protect them from danger because their body is constantly thinking that it's in danger. Yeah, and that gets to when you mentioned car accident and just kind of navigating the world after that. I was thinking, I was in a car accident in 2004. I was rear-ended on the highway. Mm. And yeah, every time I would drive through that spot, so it's now 14 years later, mm. I still have some pain from the accident and some dysfunction. And yeah, I feel, I feel my body protecting me. Mm-hmm. That's and I like, bet that even if we were to even think about that experience right now, you'd notice a tension that would show up in your muscles. Exactly. Yep. Feeling it right now. Yep, exactly, right? And noticing that there's a movement that comes along with it, mm -hmm. right? The body wants to move because it wants to do what it couldn't have done in the moment. Yeah. And that's the stored muscle memory. It's the stored tissue memory. It's the stored body memory of the experience. And every one of us has this. But we use the word trauma and people are terrified of that word trauma. They're like, no, I don't have any trauma. I'm good. <laughs> Wait, what you just said, the body wants to do what it couldn't do in the yeah. accident. Yeah. Yeah. And so we end up with twitches sometimes, mm -hmm. like muscular movements that happen. And we just, we're like, yeah, you know, I just do this thing. Like I just, you know, I just wiggle my shoulder and nobody can see me right now. So like, I'm just wiggling my right shoulder back. Right. So like, let's just say that that's something that just, there's a tick that I have and I've had it my whole life. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. It's just there. I just do it sometimes when I'm nervous or when I'm bored. That's a body language movement. It's a, it's a thing that the body was unable to do at some point and it keeps replaying it, attempting to do or to complete the sequencing of behavior. That is so cool. How is that connected then with, how is the physical then connected with the mental? Well, so we have patterns of thought that can be tied to patterns of movement. We have patterns of thought that can be tied to emotions. We have patterns of thought that can be tied to our, our like creative visualization, our imagination, 
or the things that we hear or the smells that we smell or the sounds or the, the sensations that we experience. A breeze could blow and it could remind us of the breeze on that day when our friend lost their life. And all of a sudden we're experiencing an emotion in our body that's so overwhelming that we don't know what to do. And that's just, things get tied together in, in like the neural pathways. It's like, you know, if you do something long enough, it builds, it builds a rut in the grass, so right. to speak, in our body, right? In the, in, in the neurology of our body. And the same thing kind of happens with these experiences. So the sensory experiences can get tied together. And usually what we see in people is that of these different ways that we interpret the world, so to speak, lumping them into categories, some of them will be more tied together than others. Most of us live in our meaning, in our logic center mind, and we use that as a tool to keep ourselves safe from the unconscious inner terrain in our body because the experiences can feel like too much or we might want to be in control of them or you know, something like that. And a lot of times that's because if I connect with the sensory experience in my body, I might have to feel an emotion. And if I have to feel that emotion, it might be too much and I might die, right? That's the belief in the body. Definitely not the belief in the mind. The mind goes, that's really uncomfortable. I don't need to feel that. I'm above that. I'm better than that. It's a long time ago. The thing is, is the body doesn't differentiate time. The body believes that it's happening now. Now is all that ever exists to the body. You know, there's no such thing as past and future to the body. The only reason we perceive past and future is because of our hippocampus. Like differentiation in time and space doesn't happen until three years old. And that's because of the brain development of the human being. It's fascinating. So there's that body memory. The body believes it is right now. The body says it's still happening. It's still happening. It's still happening. You're not listening to me. It's still happening. And the mind goes, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. I can see it's not. So how do we get out of that? We help the body to go through the sequence in a safe way that doesn't overwhelm it or flood it with the experience too intensely. Okay. And then when that happens, the mind, get, like, it's like, oh, I'm free. Oh, there's that pattern of behavior I had. Oh, my God. It's like, I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I'm just going to say no to them. Like I see this with some of the clients I've worked with is actually really fascinating. We do the work on the body. We, we come to the session with the thing. We name the thing that we want to work on. And then I just put the thing to the side. And then we do the thing with the body and notice what the body's doing. And then after the session, they're like, oh my God, there's this shift that's happened in me. And all of a sudden, I just don't want to do that thing that I was doing that was getting in the way of, of me living the way I wanted to live. And now it's like, I don't have to think about not wanting to do it. It's that it's like saying no to food I don't like. All of a sudden, I just don't like that thing anymore. And it's easy. It's effortless because my body agrees. I don't have to fight my body with my mind. This is so cool. How did you get into, how did you end up here? I mean, I want to go back to what you've done before, but I'm not ready yet. First, <laughs> I want to know, how did you discover somatic awareness? So the somatic experiencing process, I... Uh, came into contact with through my mother, who's a trauma specialist. Um, so she's been a psychotherapist for years now. And she came across Peter Levine's work in her pathway through understanding trauma. She works with some pretty complex trauma cases. Like she's has a reputation here in town for working with the people that no one else will take. 
and she's incredible with it. Uh, she blends all sorts of creative modalities and other things into it, and she's rather obsessed with learning. So as a result of that, I've been able to learn a lot from her. And in my journey, I've been curious about philosophy, mysticism, and um, various different cultures that still use psychedelics as a means of helping the body to discharge experiences or to heal or to things like that. And so I went and lived in Peru for a while in the Amazon and studied ayahuasca and San Pedro and worked with some of those people to get a better understanding of how they interact with it. And so through the understanding of mysticism, I ended up seeing a correlation with the science of the body. Now, understanding where the vagus nerve is in the body um, helped me to understand the experience of working with some of those, what are, what are called by the indigenous plants medicines. Because there's an experience in the body when you're working with those things where there will be an activation in your intestines where you might need to go to the bathroom. You might need to throw up. You might start breathing really hard. Your, your body temperature might change. Your heart rate might go up. There might be twitches and movements in your facial muscles. And all of this while you're sitting, while you're under the influence of this highly powerful psychedelic substance. It's really disorienting. Well, I got really curious. I'm like, well, that's, those are the areas of the body that the vagus nerve is, is touching. So my suspicion is that it somehow activates that part of the body. But through that, <clears throat> and I'm taking the long road here, through that, I began reading Peter Levine's work and starting to look in and, and began reading stuff about neuroscience and, and things like that. And my mother had just finished the program and she's like, you have to do this. You've, you've got to do this. This is, it's, it's a blending. So like Peter Levine lived with a couple different tribes while studying animals and studying human behavior. <clears throat> he came to a lot of this through studying a lot of different stuff. So he was a, an anthropologist and a biologist, and um, I think he's a PhD in psychology as well, and doctor of medicine, maybe, um, whatever. But I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I know that he's, I think, in his 80s now, and he's done a tremendous amount of work all around the world. So knowing that he comes from that foundation and knowing that it's an experiential process, I was like, well, this just makes sense as the next step for me in my, in my education. So after learning about coaching, I felt like there was a missing piece. I'm like, yeah, but there's this missing piece of the felt sense part of us, the body that's trying to talk to us. And Carl Jung was onto it with the unconscious self. And Gestalt work is into it with like getting into the, uh, <clears throat> the unconscious patterning in the body and helping to externalize all of that. Like IFS is in, it, it like talks about with parts work, you know, there's this part of me that's this, there's this part of me that's that. And so as we get to know all these different ways of looking at the psyche, what we're actually describing is that felt sense experiential thing that happens in the memory of the body, but it all happens in the right now. Right. And it all happens like the body believes it's all real right now. And people that have, that are holding things that are in the way of them moving forward in life, it's because there's something somewhere unconscious or conscious that's getting in the way. And so I was like, I've got to learn about the body. This, the body only, only knowing the now is blowing my mind. So I'm, I'm still like working through that in the back of my mind. It makes so much sense. So think about experience like this, right? So like, 
I love to talk about it like it's like experience in the world, our experience is movement, it's constantly in motion. And when we try to grab onto it and attach ourselves to some iteration of it, it's like holding onto water. Hmm. It's not possible. But then when we fix to that thing, we're fixed to this point that's already gone. And we're missing what's actually here with us right now. If we get really, really connected with ourselves, it, um, something happens. There's this something that happens in sessions when I'm working with people with their body in sessions when I work with a practitioner. It's like time and space seems different. I'm so connected to all that's shifting and the changing and the movement that's occurring that it's like there's this expanded awareness and connectedness with everything. And then at the same time, it's like I'm not cognitive in the same kind of way. So I almost feel spacey. Yeah. But it's like everything that happens, all sensation, all experience will change if we pay attention to it long enough. What keeps us stuck is the clinging to trying to force it to be something. Mm-hmm. Wisdom bomb right there. <laughs> what keeps us stuck is the clinging. Mm-hmm. Thinking that we need to change it by doing something. If we right. just be with it, it changes. Yeah. What does being with it mean? Mm. So let's say you and I were in this, like we were doing a session or something like that. And the, 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 um, the sensation in your body showed up, like we were talking through a process or there's something going on in your life and you want to, you want to move past this thing and you want to achieve this thing. And there's something you notice that when we're talking, something shows up in your body and it reminds you of a time when you were in that car. So I might have you pay attention to that sensation in your body and just pay attention to it and notice it. And as you're being with that sensation, it may grow in intensity, but then at some point by being and attending to it, it changes and it'll shift. Maybe it'll get bigger. Maybe it'll get smaller. Maybe it'll become more pronounced. Maybe it'll diminish and drift away, but it will always change because change is the one thing that's constant. Mm -hmm. And change has, so you had said that the body only knows now. And yet we can still have that constant change mm -hmm. in the now. Yeah. By attending to it. Okay. So, it, so I feel like there's an equation there almost mm. like attending to something makes the, the now open up to constant change. Mm. Or our awareness of it. Right. So like, that's another one of the pieces here. It's like, can I witness myself being with the experience or am I just in it? Hmm. If I can witness myself being in the experience, can I then notice myself witnessing myself in the experience or am I clinging to the experience? Am I trying to change it because of how I'm experiencing it? Am I making it mean something rather than allowing it to unfold and happen? Wow. So I'm guessing this work is life-changing. It is, yes. <laughs> Mind-blowing and life-changing. And I could talk about this all day, but I want to talk about mysticism as well. Okay. And probably some other stuff. So let's just go 
<laughs> with the how did you get interested in mysticism? And maybe we should define mysticism. Um, <clears throat> okay. So I guess the way I'm thinking about mysticism when I talk about it is um, the, the myth that exists in culture across our, our planet throughout time and the myths that are used in religion, in culture, in story, in our lives. And that shows up as ritual, that shows up as religion, that shows up as our customs and our, and our beliefs. And what, you know, I think I've always been interested in this. I remember being nine or 10 years old and having this book, uh, it was like a history book or I don't know, something I got at a museum maybe, about Egypt, about the Persia, about ancient cultures. I was just fascinated with it. Who are these people? I grew up in a very religious um, home. Like we were very connected to, to Christianity. It was a huge part of our life. And so ritual was a part of our life. And I was always curious about these things, but I was told not to read too much about them. And being so curious, I always wanted to know why. And so during my teenage years, I ended up pushing away from the culture that I was raised in and starting to explore. I was like, well, what is, what is this other stuff? I'm really interested to, to learn about it. I found Joseph Campbell, and through him I found all sorts of other traditions, cultures. And being that he was a cultural anthropologist, I was like, man, I want to do what he did. <laughs> but he's done it, you know, didn't need to. Yeah. So I just started diving as deeply into the mystic teachings of cultures. So the Abrahamic traditions came from a mystic. You know, Abraham was a mystic of sorts. You know, he, it wasn't like he was some organized religious person in a sense, right? So, but then all these things were built on that. So I wanted to learn like, what inspired him? What inspired the people that inspired the, the religions to grow? You know, and, and what was it about the way they looked at the world that, that made them different? Like, with the Greeks and the philosophers, like, what was it about them that, that you know, helped them to see the world with that kind of, pers uh, of a perspective? I found Alan Watts and was just obsessed with his, his way of explaining um, philosophy. So wait, I want to back up. So what was it about the Greeks that allowed them to see it through that perspective? You know, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not sure that I, that I know the answers to those questions. I just began with that inquiry of like, what can I learn about it? Mm -hmm. Like who was the oldest? Where did the teaching come from? Um, was the teaching, did it come from Greece? Actually, no, it came from this, which came from this, which came from this. You know, where did monotheistic religions stem from? Well, stem from Zoroastrianism, you know, and then everything else kind of built and, and mingled and like, then the cultures blended and then they traveled and, you know, but there are similarities in, in all of them. All organized religion, all philosophy, all has a, they all have threads of similarities to them. And when I started to see that, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> there's something to this they're all seeing this they're coming to a similar th conclusion through their own language 
it's like I can talk about the color of the sky. And I used to say this when I was when I was like 16 or 17, when I started to really grasp that there are all these cultures that are seeing things similarly. That, you know, the sky is blue. We all agree that that color is the color of the sky. Unless we can't see color, we can see that that's there. Now, we can say that in 167 different languages, in 167 different ways. But we're all talking about the same thing. Well, culture influences how we communicate about the um, experience of being in the world, so to speak. And then myth grows around that. And, and so I was fascinated with what is it about that that, that influences it? You know, is it where we are in the world? Is it the people that came before us? Is it the access that we have to more information from other cultures? You know, and then how does that influence us? What's your relationship with organized religion now? I, I don't really subscribe to any of them, and I think they're all beautiful for people. I think that they all can be really enriching and, and powerful in people's lives and very supportive of all sorts of different things. Yeah. Okay. So back to mysticism. How did you get to Peru? Oh, man. That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> Please share. Well, so I read this book in... Uh, what was it, 1999 or 1998, maybe, called The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And it's all about this guy. I don't know if you know, but for those of uh, yeah. that are listening who haven't read the book, it's a story about a guy who goes on a journey. It's kind of like The Alchemist, like the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell talks about it. But he goes on a journey, and it's this spiritual journey, and he's in search of these scrolls and these insights that are being uncovered inside of Peru. And I was, um, what's the word I'm going to use here? I was fascinated with the journey and just, I, I keep wanting to use the word enamored, but I don't think that's the exact word I want to use, but just, awestruck. I wanted to have that experience. I wanted to feel that connected to my environment, to plants, to people, to experiences unfolding serendipitously throughout my life. And Peru seemed to be, in my mind, the place where that could happen. So like I, I took this desire to have this experience and projected it all over Peru and was like, well, that's the place I'm going to go. And then through my years of inner exploration and experimenting with psychedelics and all sorts of other things, I learned that there were tribes that still lived very primitively inside of the Amazon jungle that work with different plants as a means to help people to heal. One of them being a psychedelic and one of them having powerfully transformational effects on people's physiologies, on their health, healing cancer, getting rid of like, post-traumatic stress disorder and all sorts of things. And so I became almost obsessed with learning as much as I could about these cultures that were still intact. And there are some indigenous people that still live in the Amazon basin, both in Brazil and in parts of Peru that are, that almost have zero contact. Some of them have zero contact with uh, industrialized, the industrialized world. And so it kind of became one of those things where I wanted to go and live there. I wanted to experience what it was like to live that closely connected to the earth without technology, without the belief systems and the structures that we'd created. I wanted to know what it was like 
thousands and thousands of years ago for humanity. And so in 2015, um, this guy that I had been friends with and a long time ago showed up in my life. I, I went to this, well, before that, I went to this little music festival and it was, it was just like there was teaching and some spiritual gathering stuff there and they were doing Native American circles and stuff like that. And during one of them, we finished and I was talking to this woman and um, if she hears her name's uh, Gabriel and she and I were talking, she was talking about this amazing experience she had with this teacher that she wanted to study with. And she's like, he asked if anybody would be willing to, to go across the country and let me use their car and I'd pay for their plane ticket to come stay with me for a month. And she's like, my hand shot up and he picked me. And I was like, man, I wish something like that would happen to me. <laughs> I want to go to Peru. And so like, we're doing this whole thing with this, this Hopi medicine wheel or whatever. And this woman is giving out um, like instruments or whatever for people to join in. Somebody took tobacco and put it on each of the rocks. There were like 20 stones around the, the thing. Somebody had water. Somebody, I had, she's like, anybody that feels a connection to Peru wants to, to hold the rattle and shake the rattle. And I was like, me. <laughs> so I had this rattle and it had these little hooves on it. And I was shaking it. Afterwards, some of the hooves fell off. And this guy came up to me asking if he could have them. And I'm like, well, it's not mine. It's hers. But, you know, I don't care. Let's go ask her. And he went to walk away, but then came back. And we went over to the woman. And I thanked her. She gave me a hug. And I gave her back the, uh, the rattle. And I said, oh, and, and he was wondering if he could have this. It fell off. And she took it from him, stuck, stepped between us, and put it in my hand. And she said, this is for you. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'm just going to accept that and walk away. And she turned around and started talking to the guy who had asked for it and, and stood right between us. So I walked away. And then that's when Gabriel said what she said about getting gifted this experience. So I get home from this event and I have this phone call from this guy who uh, was going through a difficult time with it in, in a relationship. And he's like, I got to do something differently in my life. Will you come on a journey with me? And I was like, man, I got clients. I'm enrolled in, in a, in a coaching school. I was, I had just begun IPEC. I was between module one and module two, you know? And I'm like, I've got in-person clients. I got things that I'm doing. Uh, I don't, I can't afford it right now. And he said, I'll pay for everything. Let's go. We'll go for three months. We'll go to Peru. And I, he kept, you know, adding more ice. And I was like, okay, I, I'm going to say yes and just trust that this is here for me. And so we went and we spent six weeks in Iquitos, traveling in and out of different places in the jungle. I met a ton of people in the, uh, in the plant medicine community and did a bunch of interviews asking people about how they experience happiness and what consciousness is to them. Asked tons of people questions about happiness. You know, what is happiness to you? What does it mean? Because the definition of happiness is the state of being happy. Um, yeah, so what did you learn? Well, I learned that happiness is a subjective experience and most people explain it by what, they, what it's not mm. rather than what it is. What it's, is it to you? Um, it's a felt sense experience. It's something that, I don't know, it's rather intangible, I think. But it's that I still don't have a full definition of it. I'm still playing with my definition of it. You know, it's, it's that this, this one guy talked about there being contentment that happens when no matter what it is that comes into our life, we can be with it and know that it's here for us in a sense. And he's, he was, he was correlating those two things saying happiness is that, um, there's this other guy 
this uh, this dude that had lived in India and, and an ashram for 20 years or something like that. He was now living in the jungle and interviewing him. He's like, it's a state of mind. It's a state of being. It's a way of being connected to the divine. Um, I interviewed a bunch of people before they went through their ayahuasca experiences and each of them had a different way of explaining it. But almost everyone I talked to said the same. Happiness for me is not having this happen. Hmm. Not being with this experience. Or it's this person. Or it's this thing. Or it's this relationship. They're like, what is it really on the inside? You know, what is it experientially? That's interesting. It sounds like happiness is is detachment. Maybe, right? Yeah. Could be. It's all subjective, so it's so much so, right? It could be it could be detachment. It could be attachment. It it could be attached non-attachment. Or non-attached attachment. <laughs> I could go on. Yeah, right? you could. Okay, let's go back to Peru. <laughs> so while we were there, I fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. And I began a journey of really shifting some things in my physical body. I lost about 105 pounds over the course of six months. Wow. Yeah. And most of it was through dietary change. But while I was there, I did a three month fast from salt, sugar, processed foods. I got rid of bread and milk and, or dairy and, and eggs and red meat and all sorts of things from my diet. And I abstained from sex and I abstained from caffeine and anything that was a stimulation to my body, I got rid of it. And then when I, then when I went down and I, I practiced with these shamans, um, while I was there, I was just like, I'm here, I'm going to do it the way they do it with their initiates. So I had a single river fish and a boiled plantain every day for food. And that was it. And so my experience with this stuff was really, really intense. I wouldn't recommend that everybody does that. It was <laughs> it's really intense. But how, um, many, how many days did you do that? So there were stints. So like I did a, a 12 day retreat sort of ish retreat. Um, stay out in the jungle. I actually took one of our one of the IPEC calls from a jungle outpost. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, I did a four day somewhere, and then I stayed somewhere for almost a month, about a month and a half, actually. I think it was. So they were intermittent, and then I was in the jungle cities, and then we went to the mountains and did some hiking in the mountains too. So when I came back to the states, I came back to the states for one of the trainings that I needed to do. And then I I sold everything I owned except for a few of my musical equipment, like a few pieces of music equipment, and went back and lived there for six months. And I didn't know the language at all when I went. It was a fascinating experience. On all ways, it helped me to experience the world differently and experience myself differently. Like we get attached to our identities, like this fixed identity that we have. And over time, it becomes pattern into who we are and it challenged every one of those things i couldn't communicate with people so i had to think about how i was in the world differently like i couldn't i needed to figure out how to read to get places to do the things that i needed to do how did i do them how do i get a cell phone sim card you know like how do i get around how do i use public transportation when i can't communicate all these things stretching me in new ways it was it was fascinating and i loved it while i was there what brought you back well, um, I was working on a project, building a, a, a startup with a friend, and he and I just, we weren't seeing eye to eye. My visa was running out, and 
I needed to come home and, and begin to dive into more of my, my coaching business. Because while I was working with some clients while I was there, I wasn't working with a lot. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do more with that. It sounds like you really, you've let curiosity lead you throughout your life. Mm-hmm. And not just in a, not just in like a, a theoretical experimental way, but in an experiential way. Yeah, I'd say that's very true. It's one of those parts of me that I, I, I work to nurture, especially in the context of, of working with other people in relationships, especially like if I can remain curious then I can stay in my prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. If I stop being curious, my amygdala might jump in. My animal nature might come in. I might feel threatened. I might respond differently. Yeah. I want to go back to identity briefly. Okay. Uh, your hair. You just cut a mm. ton of hair off. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about that, please. 46 inches of hair, 11 and a half years of growth. So what made you start growing it? So I was... Or stop cutting it, whichever. Um, yeah, so at that period in my life, let's see, whenever that was, what was it, 2008? So, you know, 2006, I think it was. I was going through some really difficult shifting and changing in my life. I was married, and in 2006, she and I split up. After a couple months, she left me for a close business partner and friend at the time. And so I was going through this identity change um, and I had gotten into some legal trouble at the time and it was like a testament to my, um, commitment to myself to be different in the world. And it was like, can I stick with this thing? Can I just stick with this one thing? I have control over this in my life. And so I began growing it and then it was like, I'm just going to grow it and give it to locks of love. And then, and then it was, no, I'm just going to keep growing it. I want to see how long it'll get. And then it was, I'm going to grow it till it gets to my ankles. And so I just kept growing it. And then I became really attached to it. It became popular for men to have hair with a bun all of a sudden. And I'm like, oh my God, I just <laughs> hit the jackpot. <laughs> I started doing this before it was popular, right? And that, that was new for me. So I stayed with it. And I realized I've been really challenging my identity over the past year and really looking at the ways that I can shift and move the things inside of myself to help me to step into and live into the person that I really want to be. And that was one of the things that I could feel it. I was resisting it really deeply resisting it. I was clinging to this concept and this idea that this is who I am. And if I let it go, something will happen. And I feel like it was actually holding me back. (laughs) And when I did it, I felt this freedom. I was like, ah, finally. Did you feel like you stepped, you were free to step into yourself? Hmm. I felt like I was free to be myself in a new way. Okay. Like there was. How long did it get? It was to my knees. So you didn't quite make it to your ankles. No, I didn't. But it started, my hairline started thinning a little bit and receding. And I was like, "Um, (laughs) it's not working anymore. So like my brother's getting married next weekend. And I'm very excited about it. We went out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming for his bachelor party. And I cut it right before then. 
uh, my excuse that I used to take the action in the moment was there's no way I'm going to get a helmet on my head to go skiing or to go snowmobiling. I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm so tired of dealing with this hair. And then it was, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to talk about it. Now it's real. And then it was like that, just like within three days, I had made the decision and then it got a cut. I love it. Will you ever grow it out like that again? I don't know. Maybe. I'm, I'm actually, I, I cut it a little longer at first and now I'm, I'm actually think I'm going to cut it shorter. Um, even shorter than it is right now. I'm not really sure. I'm just kind of playing with it. Like I haven't been able to wear a hat in like, you know, 11 years, yeah. 10 years maybe. And now I get to wear a hat sometimes. It's like the, the little opportunities that completely change our experience of our own lives. I mean, there, there are still things that I hang on to about myself. There's, there are identity pieces that we feel make us us. But like if we really challenge them, then what happens to our life as a result of us challenging them and doing something new? Our life completely and totally changes. And so I'm really fascinated with the potential for exponential growth. And so in order to do that, I feel like I have to do something radical that challenges my perception of me. And so I'm constantly looking for ways to do that. What can I shift? What are these little things that I can do? Like it was a subtle thing, but it's huge in its subtlety. It is. It absolutely is. So you've talked about a lot of this stuff. You've done a lot of big stuff. Mm-hmm. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? Ooh. That's a great question. Hmm. Um, I don't know. So, so it's like kind of, it's an interesting question because it's the me right now that's answering the question is different than the me that was experiencing these frightening experiences. I think going six hours into the Amazon jungle, drinking ayahuasca with uh, majority of people that only speak Spanish or some jungle tribal language was one of the most terrifying things. There was one night where I really legitimately thought I was dying, which is a pretty common thing for people who work with ayahuasca. But I really, really, really thought I was dying. And I was not, did not feel like I was getting the support that I needed. We were six hours from any sort of help. There was no way to call anyone to help us. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. So what happened next? I laid there and dealt with feeling like I was going to die for about four hours while the shaman held my hand, held my pulse and sang these blessings over me and poured this like fragrant water on me and had me drink these things and trying to draw the, as they see negative energy as as spirits and whatnot to try to draw that out of my body. You know, it it was very, 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 very powerful experience. And after that, I did not feel like the same person for a while. There's a shift that happened in me. It was like, whoa, mortality. I sat on the edge. I had this internal dialogue. I was was with it enough inside of me that I was able to have this internal dialogue of, if I let go and close my eyes, I will drift away. Wow. If I don't stay present, and my body was like kind of sort of twitching here and there, and my pulse rate would, was almost non-existent. My lymph nodes were swollen before I went into that ceremony, and I had a fever, so like I was purging some stuff in my body. My body was trying to heal. But 
I don't think they were listening to what my body was saying. I think they were ill-prepared for what I was going through. And then at the same time, I trusted them to know. And then in that experience, I'm like, why did I do this? I'm going to go. Somehow I'm going to, you know, like no one knows I'm here. No one knows where here is that I am. People know that I'm out somewhere in the jungle, but they don't know where I am. I was with no one that I knew. So would you do it again? Would I do it again? Maybe. <laughs> Not like that. What would you do differently? Well, I would, I would know more about the people that I'm working with. I mean, that was one isolated experience. I think the rest of my experience there was amazing. It was incredible. And it was, it was very healing for me to be able to be that vulnerable and be that terrified and then come out of it and be okay and be safe. Yeah. But it stretched my edge. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> In every way. In every way, yeah. Well, as we wrap up now, is there anything else you want to share? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I think I'd love to leave people with the reminder that everybody can heal from anything on some way, in some level, right? The body naturally is in search of healing. I might, I might be calling it healing, but we could call it resolution. And it doesn't matter whether you're living in the poverty line or you're in the 0.00001% of humanity financially. Everybody is a human being that experiences the world in a similar way. And our bodies, just like our minds, can, be, can help us and assist us on our journeys towards whatever we're headed towards, towards wholeness, towards success, towards family, towards whatever. And human connection is one of the most powerful, powerful things that we have in the world. It stimulates the production of hormones in our body and our brain that help us to be healthy. You know, social media is so popular because of the stimulation to our brain function. Alcohol, drugs, sex, all of these things stimulate the production of certain chemicals. But we can get that by being connected to another human being, just being connected and being vulnerable. Yes, that, that is a powerful ending. So let's wrap it up. And will you tell people, please, where, where we can find you? Yeah, uh, my website, social media. I have an Instagram account that I don't do much with. So... My website is www.willreason.com and my Facebook as well. I do most of my, my discussion through Facebook. Yeah. I'm going to be doing a men's retreat in Peru, taking people on a 14-day journey with another wonderful, powerful somatic practitioner. His name's Ta. We're going to be doing this next March. And if anybody's interested, we don't have any of the promotional material up yet, but we're working on putting it together now. We have the itinerary together. It's going to be incredible. And can people just reach out to you through your website to learn about that? Yeah. And they can email me, will at willreason.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been really powerful. Thank you, Kelsey. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group. Find your awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, Go to my website, kelseyabbott.com, 
And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.